Es un placer para mí el poder estar presente en esta capilla en el Seminario Bautista Midwestern en Kansas City. It is an honor. Every time I'm here, it is an honor to be in chapel at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Some of you might be saying, even after Dr. Masden got through, who is that man? Oh, that man is a fourth-generation Hispanic born in the USA. I'm thankful for my parents, Maria Cisnero-Sena and Fabian Gutierrez-Sena, who came to know the Lord under a brush arbor tent. They were radically committed to religion before. They worshiped their saints. They depended on women, a woman called Mary. They didn't know Jesus as their personal savior. And one day, a co-worker invited them to go to a brush arbor under a tent Pentecostal meeting. And that preacher preached the gospel with all of his heart in the power of the Holy Spirit. Primary thing is he raised up Jesus. He told him about the cross that we were singing about, about the Christ that died and shed his blood and gave his life for all of us, all of us. And my daddy and my mom responded to the gospel and they were born again in that moment. But not only were they born again in that moment, saved, redeemed, became part of the family of God. They lived out their lives in fellowship with the church, with the Lord, and they grew in that relationship. They modeled that for us in our, in our family. All of our siblings came to know Christ because of my parents. At the age of nine, I gave my life to Christ. At the age of 17, I surrendered to the ministry, vocational ministry, where I grew up in the context I grew up in the Spanish community. You always said when you surrendered to the ministry, I'm to pastor a church. There was no other option. But what a blessing it was to serve in ministry. Serve in ministry. Priscilla and I were married. We went off to college and to seminary. We pastored churches as Uh, our pastor or our, our leader this morning has said, it was wonderful. It's been a wonderful journey, pastoring, serving as a missionary, as a state staff, as a national denominational worker, as part of the executive committee. And one of the most exciting dimensions in my ministry, and I don't mind telling you that I'm 78 years of age, 53 years of ministry, And the greatest opportunity that God has allowed me to have is to serve here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, training and equipping men and women in the Spanish community to be more effective in their church, in their ministry. 2009, I came to the campus for the first time. And I helped teach a course, a doctoral course, here on the campus. 
with Gustavo Suarez, who was working here at that time. We had to struggle and scour the land. We had to knock on doors and call a lot of people to be able to have six students in our class. We had to struggle. We had to fight. And God opened up doors for me to continue serving here. Started off by serving as the director of the doctoral program in Spanish. And then God opened the door to serve as the director of the Spanish studies program, master's and doctor of ministry and PhD. What a blessing that has been. Today, we have 241 students. PhD, we have 33 students. The D-man, we have 136 students. The THM, we have three students. And in our master's program, we have 89. We have 243 students. Professors, it's not one or two anymore. We have 31 professors at Midwestern serving in one facet, master's or doctoral program in Midwestern. We have come a long ways, baby. Can you say amen to that? <laughs> Glory. That's exciting. I'm so proud to be a part of a ministry that God is blessing. And I want to stop for a second. You say, well, I thought you were going to preach. I am. <laughs> shout it out. I have to shout it out. I thank God for men that have influenced my life. Right here on this campus, like Dr. Masden, Dr. Chipman, Mindy. She is a wonderful lady. She'll straighten you out or she'll help you out. She's been a blessing. I tell you what, I've known her a long time. And she has always been encouraging. I thank God for our provost. He has been an incredible blessing in my life and opened doors for me. For our team, I have to say I'm very proud of AA. Who is AA? It's not an insurance. I'm talking about Arnaldo Achucarro. He's right here at the front. He has been a blessing, a right-hand man. Dr. Rudy Gonzalez, who is our director of the PhD program. For Dr. Cesar Perez, who pastors and serves in a church that is multi-ethnic, reaching all people with a gospel in Houston, Texas, and are part of our professorship and our teaching at Midwestern. Victor Chininin and Angelica Ribot, they help us Make sure that all the letters are going out, that students in the Hispanic community that are calling in, they can, they can service them and be there attentive to their needs. I thank the Lord that I'm at Midwestern. And I'm so excited because Midwestern has found its lane, if I could say it that way, for the church. What a beautiful, what an empowering Message to say to Southern Baptists, we are here to serve the church, to train men and women to minister in the church more effectively. And I'm a part of that, to reaching and teaching and training Hispanics all across the world in the Hispanic community. I remember when I heard, first heard the announcement that we have become global. And I said, wow, the Hispanic community, we, the Hispanic Spanish Studies Group, were first in that area. When the pandemic came and it destroyed 
and it hurt and it injured and it served as obstacles and it, many of our people were impacted by it. That's when we saw a growth in our Hispanic community and the Spanish Studies program became global. We're all over the Hispanic world with students who are studying with us. And then I'll tell you what cranks my crank is that we are bringing to the forefront that we're here to reach the nations. Yes, we are. I'm thankful that I work for years as an advocate for Hispanics in our Southern Baptist Convention that I constantly kept pushing our executive committee and our Southern Baptist Convention, don't forget about Hispanics. That was my calling. That was my ministry, equipping Hispanics. But God has been dealing with my heart and my spirit more than ever that it's good that I reach my family with the gospel, Hispanic family, that it's important that I reach our Hispanic community with the gospel and I train them. But I must wake up to the fact that I have been called by the Great Commission, by Christ himself, to go beyond my comfort zone. And I hope you will too, to reach beyond that to others who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reaching the nations is our responsibility. For most of you, if not for all of you, this will be merely a reminder of the Great Commission. But for me, it's an expansion. It's opening up my mind. It's opening up my spirit. It's opening up my heart that I am responsible, not only for Hispanics, but for all people to preach and teach and share the gospel in the most effective way that I can. Jesus gave the church the mandate to evangelize the world. The importance of Christ's command to his followers to go into all the world to proclaim the gospel and make disciples is evidenced by the fact that this command occurs in all four gospels. There in Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20, in Mark 16, 15 through 18, in Luke chapter 25, verses 45 through 49, and then in John 17, 18, and then in 20, verse 21. Each of these versions contributes a different emphasis on the nature of the command to proclaim the gospel. At the same time, each underscores the same objective of sending the church out into the world, bearing the good news. For all of you, I want to say that I have all my footnotes, so you can have a copy of that if you need them. The clearest and the most compelling passage, I believe, is the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The commission gives the final command of Christ to the church, go and reach all people. It's geographical and cultural implications and his commitment to his disciples. Christ never asked us to do anything where he would not be present with us. Disciple was Christ's favorite word for those whose lives were intricately linked with his. The Greek word for disciple is used 269 times in the gospel and in the book of Acts. 
It means a taught and trained one. In the Gospel of John, defines the word disciple in three ways. One, or first, a disciple is a Christian who is involved in the word of God on a continual basis. Two, or second, a disciple is one who lays down his life for others. Third, a disciple is one who abides daily in a fruit-bearing union with Christ, our Savior and our Lord. In the Great Commission, Jesus declares the mission of the church. And this is my passage for this morning. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, not just Hispanics, not just Asians, not just whites, not just African-Americans, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. In the Greek, the word going and baptizing and teaching are all participles. The imperative found in this commission is the Greek word that we translate into make disciples. And by the way, the reason I'm not pronouncing them in Greek, because I have a hard time pronouncing them in English. I've had a stroke, and my mouth sort of twists around when I pronounce some of these words. So the Greek scholars are already in their mind saying, come on, Bob, say it in Greek. I won't. <laughs> Matthew 28, 18 through 20 establishes that the followers of Christ are to communicate the gospel of salvation and to walk alongside believers in the journey that will lead them into a lifelong commitment to discipleship. The, the command of Christ is more than the proclamation of the gospel of salvation and guiding individuals to a decision for Christ. For years, I confess, this is my confessional time as a pastor, as a preacher, as a member of the family of church, the Christian commitment group. I, for many years, primarily focused on preaching the gospel and trying to get them to make a decision. In the first place, we don't, we don't change their hearts. Christ does. But I tried to get them to come and make a commitment on Sunday morning which is important, but I want to say it again. The command of Christ is more than the proclamation of the gospel and guiding individuals to make a decision for Christ. It's not how many notches you have on your gun, how many people respond during the invitation. It's more than that. Making disciples involves leading people to declare Jesus as Savior and Lord, committing to being lifelong learners and followers of Jesus and his word and becoming kingdom-minded ministers that seek daily to expand his kingdom. Inherent in the command to make disciples and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you is the concept that these actions must be emphasized in environments where sharing and accountability are going on. 
It was never the intent of the biblical mandate to occur in isolation, but within this type of community. I like what David J. Hesselgrave says, make disciples is the sole imperative and the central activity indicated in the Great Commission. To make converts and believers is certainly involved. That is important. It is important. But faith and discipleship can never, ever, ever be divorced. That is important. Jesus exemplified what he required, what he required of of all his followers in his own lifestyle and methodology of ministry. Robert Coleman states in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Jesus called people to follow him, dedicated a significant portion of his earthly ministry to the task of fellowshipping and training them mentored them as they went out and held them accountable for carrying out his instructions. The command to make disciples, therefore, lays down the foundation for the establishment of congregations, of strengthening congregations in which people learn together, fellowship with one another, and carry out the duties of discipleship in a relationship of mutual accountability. In the expression, make disciples of all nations, the Greek word for all nations is ta ethne, which means people groups. While this word can be applied to the nations, can be applied to nations as political entities with geographical boundaries, the word ethne, from which we get the word ethnic, relates more closely to people groups. This means that all people groups need to be reached with the gospel. Again, I want to say it. My focus, I never intended it to exclude anybody, but my focus has been on Hispanics, reaching my people, reaching my group, because I felt a calling to do that. But we must reach all of the people with all of the gospel. They must be reached and led to become lifelong disciples of Jesus Christ. Robert Logan states, as Luke records, Christ coupled this command with a statement in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, in which the resurrected Christ articulated very clearly the multi-dimensional impact of the Great Commission. You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. You shall be witnesses unto me in Judea. You shall be witnesses to me in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The implication of the Great Commission, therefore, required the crossing of linguistic, the crossing of racial, the crossing of cultural, the crossing of religious as well as geographical boundaries. While you and I are committed to share the gospel with those in our community, we must remember that we have to go worldwide with the gospel. 
The gospel, the book of Acts makes it very clear that the followers of Christ needed to cross these barriers in order for the gospel to become truly, absolutely universal over against being a Jewish sect, a Spanish sect, a, ma- a limited sect. As, com- as written in the book of Acts in chapter 6 and verse 15. If this aspect of the Great Commission is to be put into operation, churches need to be planted, churches need to be strengthened, churches need to be re-envisioned among all segments of our society, in our country, and in our world. Every barrier to the gospel needs to be bridged by establishing churches in every geographical and zip code. They need to be close to the unchurched. We need to reach them. You know, among Hispanics, they tell me that there's a formula and that Hispanics don't fit the formula. You have 3,500 churches now, which is really a very small group when there's 60 million Hispanics. They tell me, you, you don't fit the formula of underreached or underserved. Yes, we do. Millions are going to hell without Christ. They're lost. And can you imagine if you multiply that with all the ethnic groups? We need to reach globally with the gospel. Now, if we're going to do that, and if we're going to step outside our own comfort zone, if we're going to reach beyond our own linguistical and cultural group into others, we need to remember that cross-cultural understanding begins with the exegesis of that target group. We must understand who they are, how they think, how they walk, how they talk, what they do. Cross-cultural understanding begins with an exegesis of the target group. By exegeting the culture, we learn assumptions and patterns that are already at work. Sometimes we go to try to impose. That's not our job. It's to understand who are they. How are they thinking? What are they doing? According to Peter, and here goes my accent again, Beyerhaus, B-E-Y-E-R-H-A-U-S. To be indigenous means that a church, in obedience to the apostolic message, has been entrusted to it and to the living guidance of the Holy Spirit, is able in its own particular historical situation to make the gospel intelligible and relevant word and deed to the eyes and the ears of men. How are we transmitting the gospel? You've heard it said, you have said it, you have preached it, you have taught it in classes, you have heard it. We're not talking about changing the gospel, just finding the best way to communicate it clearly to the new culture, to the new people group that you're reaching. The church always, absolutely always, struggles with the need to enculturate while guarding against synchronism or syncretism. Yet this reality in the life of the church must never be an excuse for not seeking to reach every person in their sphere of influence with the gospel as the followers of Christ seeking to engage the culture of our day, they should be asking questions such as this one. How can the gospel 
best incarnate in this setting. Questions like what cultural values, what cultural symbols can be used to illustrate the gospel to these new people where I'm going that I don't know, that I don't understand. They don't speak my language. I don't know. Tom, Tom Stephens provides a detailed list of questions that I like very much as I think of witnessing beyond my comfort zone in other groups. What is the worldview of the target audience? What is the culture's decision-making pattern? What does it cost a person in this culture to become a Christian? You know what it cost my dad and my mom? To be expelled from their family. You are no longer part of our religion that we've taught you. You both are now no longer my children. You are no longer part of my family. Go away. But my dad and my mom faithfully served God and were steady witnesses to my relatives about what Christ had done in their lives. And I remember my daddy and my mom saying, one year later, my grandfather had his son bring him to Roswell, New Mexico. Yes, to Area 51. He brought him because my grandfather came to apologize and to say, excuse me for getting emotional, to say, we don't agree with your religion, but we see that you're sincere about it. It cost to be a Christian. It cost my dad and mom a high cost, but because of their faithfulness, I cannot say my daddy, my granddaddy became born again or knew Christ or was saved, but I can tell you what, many in our family have been saved. What does it cost a person in this culture to become a Christian? What redemptive analogy is best for the culture? How does this culture view Christianity? We need to know all that. What does this culture, some say it, it doesn't matter, just get the Bible and tell them they're going to hell without Christ. Yes, they are. But we need to do it and temper it in love and understanding. What does this culture understand about the basic components of the gospel story? Is this culture a shame culture or is it a guilt culture? How will this culture understand Christian rituals? What is the best delivery system for exposing the people of this culture to the gospel? If we take seriously the theology of mission, the word must become flesh in every context, not only in yours, not only in your environment, in all environments, in all contexts. Despite the challenge and the risk, you and I must intentionally and strategically take the gospel to all individuals within their sphere of influence. However you do it, with a translator, with someone else going with you, however you do it, it is important to acknowledge, and I'm coming to a close, it is important to acknowledge that the one giving this mandate to you and I, to Midwestern, to the church, 
is the risen Christ to whom all authority has been given according to Acts 1.8. The commitments that he made to the church are found there in chapter 16 and in chapter 28 of the book of Matthew. First, Jesus articulates his commitment to build his church. He's committed. And I tell you, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I like when it says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. In Matthew 16, 18, it is evident, at least to me, it is evident from this passage that the establishment and the expansion of the church is first and foremost, hear me well, a divine enterprise. It's not a Southern Baptist enterprise. It's a divine enterprise. It's a godly enterprise. Leaders involved in church planting or strengthening of churches or re-envisioning churches need to keep in mind that Jesus is the founder, that Jesus is the head, that Jesus is the owner of the church, and it belongs to him, capital H, and not to the leaders or to the members. It doesn't belong to you, friend. I many times thought I was the guy. I was the man. I was in church. And what do we say? My church. It's not your church. It's God's church. I understand what we mean when we say it, but let's be careful. Church leaders, pastors, laymen, laywomen, ministers of education, ministers of music, church members. We need to realize that it is Jesus who builds the church. And we must recognize that we are his instruments, not the other way around. Amen? Yes, that's what it is. First, he says, I have a commitment. And this is the way I'm going to close. Jesus made a commitment to be with his disciples as, he, as they obeyed his commission. Verse 20 of chapter 28 of Matthew says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He made a commitment to be with his disciples and with his church until he brings human history to the, con to the conclusion that he has determined. He's coming again. I know that. I don't know when, but we ought to be serving faithfully to reach the world with the gospel every day until he comes. The commitment holds true until the Lord returns again. This means there will not be a time. There will not be a moment while he, while he will not be with us. Again, I want to say that. There will not be a time when he will not be with his followers, with his church, with you and me, who are doing his will and obeying his command. I love serving Hispanics. I am proud to be the director of the Spanish Studies program at Midwestern. 
We are serving Hispanics worldwide. It's a global ministry. We are seeing men and women all over in strategic places serving. But I am convicted more than ever this morning that I must step out of my comfort zone and I must carry out and fulfill the commission that God gave the church and gave me and gave you, that we must reach the nations with the gospel, so like with you. I thank God for this privilege this morning. God bless you.